When was the last time that a limo caught your eye? There's something about limousines that when they go by, you just can't help but follow them on their way past. I remember we were in Chicago with my family over one Christmas holiday, and we were going to go into a restaurant, and while we were waiting, a limo pulls up out front. And automatically you're thinking, who is inside? Who is so important that they want to eat at the same restaurant that we do? Well, this guy by the name of Sinbad hopped out. Some of you remember him from the Cosby Show days. And he walked in, asked how long the wait was, and he didn't want to wait that long either, and got back in his limo, and away he went. But as a young man, I thought, wow. Because limos are driven for people that are important, or for people that are trying to pretend they're important, right, Terry? (laughs) Either way, they always catch your eye. You can't help but wonder who's inside. But on this particular night, there wasn't just one limo pulling up out front. But one after the next, after the next, after the next, they were lined up coming to this big party. The place was jammed. There were limos everywhere. However, this time, the paparazzi wasn't there. You know, those ambiguous gawking cameramen that are always showing up when there is something happening But there's no paparazzi tonight because the word's out. Nobody important is coming. But the invited guests drive up with their rented status symbols, the men in their greased back black hair with a pasty gaudy girl on their arm. And one by one by one they come, but there's no sight of the guest. Where is the guest of honor? The party's already begun. And eventually he arrives. You see him. In fact, you can hear him a long way off chugging in his old beat-up Ford Taurus. And he pulls right up to the front and gets out. No tux, no girl, just a Walmart special blue light suit. Blue light special suit. Is that how it's supposed to go? Anyway. But when the host sees him, He goes bounding down the steps as if it's the president of the United States and welcomes him there. The party can now begin. The guest of honor is here. Turn with me, if you will. I want to look at an unforgettable late night party recorded in Scripture. And we find it in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Now, Matthew is so humble that in his account... He does not let us know that he is the one throwing the party. But if you look in Luke and in Mark, they are very sure, they want to make sure that you understand that Matthew is throwing this party in his ornate mansion. Yet here in Matthew, where we'll look this morning, he doesn't say a word about it. Matthew chapter 9, beginning verse 9. Before we get to the party, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting on the, at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, I've got to say, this is a very gutsy call on the part of Christ. Because need I remind you, in case you forgot, Matthew was a member of the hated tax collectors. You know who the tax collectors were, don't you? 
They were those wealthy Jews who collaborated with the despised Romans to raise the taxes of the little land of Judea. Because you see, it's a good deal. They would assess an area like Hendersonville, and the Romans would say it's worth about 500000 It's a good deal. The bad part is the Romans would say, we don't care how you get it, just get it. Otherwise, we'll take it out of your hide. So when they were under that kind of pressure, they were to set exorbitant levels of taxes to make sure that enough came in. But whatever came in above was simply gravy. And so you can understand that tax collectors were not the most popular men in the village. In fact, they were despised, hated as co-laborers or collaborators who had cut some kind of a deal with the devil himself. So you've got to admit... This is a pretty gutsy call on the part of Jesus to call that kind of man. Hey, Matthew, yes, you, follow me. I'm going to make you part of my inner circle, of my closest. Wow. Reading verse 9 again, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Verse 10, now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, behold, that many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Notice the word many, many tax collectors and sinners. Again, Matthew doesn't give us any indication that he's the one throwing the party. But Luke is absolutely insistent that we know it's Matthew himself. And because Matthew is a tax collector, he's a very wealthy man. He will not be wealthy for long, but he's living in this opulent mansion. So Matthew's sowing the party, and because verse 9 and verse 10 are juxtaposed side by side, both Matthew's calling and this party, we know two reasons. Two reasons. It's Matthew's kind of subtle way of telling us why he's throwing the party. Reason number one, I believe he's overwhelmed with a deep and almost tearful gratitude to the Jesus of Nazareth who saved him from the life of under-the-table extortion and greed. I just have to say thank you. And reason number two, Matthew cannot wait to have his buddies with their consorts, their girlfriends, and their wives meet this very same Jesus, who obviously is a friend of tax collectors. Because when mercy comes running for you, you cannot keep that fact to yourself. You've got to tell it. Now hit the pause button right there before we go on. Some like to use this story to say Jesus went to parties as if he drank and caroused from time to time. Quite on the contrary. If you study the story, the party was thrown for Jesus. And while many sinners were there, I don't think it was because they were into sin but rather were sick of sin and were looking for a way out. Are you with me? So Matthew's having a party, a huge party. Broke the bank to say thank you. And so verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Notice the coupling of those two categories, tax collectors and sinners. Whenever the Jews played word association, have you ever played word association? I say a word and you respond, the first thing that comes to your mind. Whenever they would play that game, whenever they would say tax collector, the winning response was always sinner. If you say Pharisee, saint. 
If you say Roman, heathen or pig. If you say Samaritan, half-breed or dog. But tax collector, sinner every time. They're always bound together, those two. So now all these tax collectors and sinners and other such social, ecclesiastical outcasts are asking Matthew, what happened to you? What's going on? I mean, you've really changed. In the course of that conversation, Jesus invariably comes up. He has to. I mean, while he was still a sinner, Christ called me, he probably has to say. And as they talk, they say, we've got to meet this guy. Now, this is no strange occurrence. I was in someone's home just this week, someone who made a decision last week. And she was telling me about how many of her friends were saying, what's going on? And some of them were asking questions. She's already handed out Bible studies and brochures. They want to know. And so at this party, talking with Jesus, and guess what? The Pharisees think they're invited. Wrong, guys. But they didn't know. They just went ahead and showed up anyway. Wouldn't you know it? And so verse 11, we read, When the Pharisees saw it, Pharisees, when the Pharisees saw the party, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, they're party poopers. It's like that old jingle. Every party has a pooper. That's why we invited you, party pooper. That's why the Pharisees showed up. They weren't invited. Drove up in their Honda Accords. And then we have this Kodak moment. You picture Jesus. I love this. Look at this. Because the Pharisees, these haughty religious prelates, wouldn't be caught dead in the house of an unclean publican. But they've got to find a way to get inside that party somehow. They can't go in, so I imagine they find perhaps some giant window where the orange light is casting out on the ground, and they come up on tiptoes, and they try and get attention of a few of the people inside. Because Pharisees always hiss. Hey, you over there. Come here, come here, come here. They're a bunch of wimps. Won't take on Jesus, but will pick on his followers instead. But here comes that Kodak moment. I love this moment because my mom was this way. Perhaps your mom's this way. Even Elizabeth's a little bit this way. You remember as a kid, you were at a party or some social gathering and you were over here with your buddies, and your mom was over there talking and laughing with all the other moms, and you make one slip of a word, and your mother comes bounding over, what did you say, young man? (laughs) Something about mothers, they have this rear antenna, and they pick up everything that is said and done, and boom, they can pounce on the situation. And so we see the same idea. Jesus has that antenna up, and he hears their question. And he answers it. He says, you had a question, gentlemen? I love that about Jesus. He'll never leave you alone, by the way. You'll never have to dangle alone if he's your master. He's got an ear to wherever you are. He's listening. So verse 11, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12, when Jesus heard that, See, that ear is cocked. When Jesus heard that, Jesus cut into the conversation and said to them, 
And by the way, when Jesus speaks, he gets everyone's attention. The party just goes quiet. And Jesus from across the room says, hey guys, out the window, you have a question? You can ask me. And Jesus speaks in verse 12. Hey, don't you know? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In fact, go and learn. Since you guys weren't invited to this party anyway, why don't you go home and have a Bible study? Go have a Bible study. I want you to pull out the scrolls. Make sure you have the scroll of Hosea. And there's this one little line in Hosea, guys, that I wish you would meditate on for a while, for the rest of the night, perhaps. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Cha-ching. One prayer phrase I've read renders it this way. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. See, insiders just want to be coddle, 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 coddle. He says, no way. Reminds me a little bit of the prayer that Martin Luther once prayed, recorded for us in great controversy. He's, and I, when I saw this, I said, thank you, Luther. I appreciate that. I underline that. I'd like to pray it too. He says this, may a God of his mercy preserve me from a church in which there are none but saints. Whoa. You know what he means when he says that, Right? Awful church to be in, to be a part of if there's only saints in it. Trust me. Good thing you and I are here, right? May God of his mercy preserve me from a church in which there are none but saints. I desire to dwell with the humble, the feeble, the sick, who know and feel their sins, and who groan and cry continually to God from the bottom of their hearts to obtain his consolation and support. In fact, just a few chapters back, we have Jesus on the Sermon on the, on the Mount saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their spiritual impoverishment. Blessed are those who mourn and who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Because that's the group that will be comforted. They're the ones that will be filled. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so here Jesus says, I came to call sinners. What kind of sinners do you suppose? You know, as far as I can tell, there's no expressed limitations in Jesus' response. He probably means, now I'm just guessing, but he probably means all sinners. You know the type, don't you? Heterosexual sinners and homosexual sinners. Ethical sinners and unethical sinners. Alcoholic sinners and non-alcoholic sinners. Democrat sinners and Republican sinners. Some think Jesus hung out with the Republicans. He did not. He hung out with the publicans. There's a difference. <laughs> Independent sinners, probably. White sinners, black sinners, brown sinners, yellow sinners, red sinners, all of them. Rich and poor sinners, yep. Male and female sinners, yep. Educated and illiterate sinners, yep. Christian sinners, Jewish sinners, Muslim sinners, Hindu sinners, atheist sinners, Adventist sinners. Come on, y'all, you know the type. All of them. He came to call them all. Apparently, when mercy comes running, it comes running for all of us. What strikes me is a bit of good news. Doesn't it strike you that way? And so he says, hey, guys at the window, you weren't invited, so go home and have a Bible study and look it up, Hosea 6.6. 6. Figure out what God means when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Good night. Did you know that that solitary line of Hosea is quoted only twice in the New Testament? 
both times by Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew, both times on the lips of Jesus himself. There must be a lot of punch packed into that powerful line, and I imagine Matthew resonated with it perhaps more than the others. The only other time we find the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 12. Let's turn there. Matthew chapter 12. Let's take a quick look at this. Verse 1. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat them, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Verse 6, yet I say to you, if these guys could just get this, if you and I could just get this, in this place there is one greater than the temple. Verse 7, I wish you'd have another Bible study. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy. There it is. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Only two places in the New Testament, we just read them. And by the way, the story is not over yet. Jesus says, hey guys, you're slowing me up. I'm on my way to church today. Where's the synagogue? Because I'm going to worship with you. And so in the next verse, verse 9, when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man with a withered hand. And he asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They didn't even want an answer. They just wanted to nail him. And Jesus said to them, these guys are everywhere. Then he said to them, if any of you has a sheep, come on, guys, tell me. You got a sheep? Sheep wanders out of its little corral on the Sabbath, tumbles down into a pit. And you're on your way to church, and you look down in the pit, and there's your prized sheep. What are you going to do on the Sabbath? Don't tell me you're not going to go, that you're going to go worship and leave your sheep there. Are you crazy? You're going to climb down and get all dirty in the pit just to save the life of that little, tiny, fluffy sheep. Now Jesus says, verse 12, of how much more value than is a man than a sheep. Therefore, I'm telling you, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he turns from those party poopers and says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man with the shriveled hand realizes he's in the presence of divinity and in faith he stretches out his hand and just like that, just like that, he was completely restored. And then verse 14, oh boy, the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. And it's clear from the gospel record from that point it's all downhill. He's headed to his death. By that single act of mercy, Jesus signed his own death warrant. Mercy must be that important to him. Sign his execution orders. There they are, ladies and gentlemen, two stories, one punchline. I desire mercy. And what's the truth about that punchline? Uh, that, this is the great truth about mercy. You can track this all the way through Jesus' life. And the truth is that mercy elevates need above creed. Need over creed. Need over creed. That means people above propriety. What's proper? Nope. People more important. Human lives above human laws. And mercy 
above justice. Did you get that? Mercy above justice. Now, are you imagining this? Are we just making it up? I don't think so. In fact, there's a stunning line. Go with me to James chapter 2. If you find Hebrews, James is right on the heels of Hebrews. James chapter 2, verse 13. James chapter 2, verse 13. We read, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Isn't that something? For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In fact, the Greek word for judgment is krisis. The New Testament translates it in one of two ways. It can be translated either as judgment or justice. So we could interchange that. An equal reading would be mercy triumphs over justice. Now, if you're like me, you're already protesting in the back of your mind. But before you raise up and protest, I want to be quick to affirm that we are not trying to create some sort of false dichotomy between mercy and justice. We don't have to construct a straw man or a paper tiger. I understand that mercy and justice are not antithetical. They are not opposites. They're not even opposed. In fact, they hold hands. Psalms 85 declares that mercy and justice kiss. So they're not at odds. They're not opposites. In fact, God gave us the law because he knew our great need. He himself said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was created because he knew our need, our need for rest, our need for a full day to commune with him. And he knew the dangers of coveting and lying and cheating and stealing. So because of our need, he gave us the creed. Yet too often we get it wrong. And we elevate the creed void of any connection to our need. Are you with me? Void of any response to God and his love. Void of the fact that it is a gift given by a loving God. Who only wants and desires what's for our best good. So mercy and justice are not at odds, but rather they hold hands. However, there are times when mercy must overrule a strict, legalistic sense of justice and right. When need must be elevated above creed, when people are more important than propriety, when mercy must triumph over judgment. Think about this for a second. There are times when the letter of the law or the letter of the church manual or the letter of the school handbook says, throw them out. But there are times when mercy must stand up. It must stand up in that committee room. It must stand up in that boardroom, that staff room, and say, you just can't, you just cannot. Mercy must override and overrule a strict letter of the law. Not so that somehow we can become lawless. Don't misunderstand. But rather for the sake of making certain that we are never loveless. There's a controversial line written over 100 years ago, finding volume three of the testimonies, says this, in reforms, we would better come one step short of the mark than to go one step beyond it. If anything, hold back. And in this next line, and if there's an error at all, let it be on the side next to what? The people. If you're going to err, if you're going, if you're going to be err at all, always err on the side of the people. I desire mercy, that's why. 
And so Jesus, what did he do? He sided with the need of the people rather than the creed of the Pharisees. You know, if you stop and think about it, upholding the creed and the standard and the law in a legalistic sense can really become selfish and self-serving because my creed, my rights are being violated. Come on, you fall in line. Quit embarrassing me. You're making me look bad. Not in my church, we won't. Yet I've seen it time and time again when we place our creed ahead of the individual's need. We merely drive people away. Sanctification is not the work of a moment. It takes a lifetime. And don't pretend for a moment that God has not been merciful and patient with you. Because you see, when mercy triumphs over justice... When self is put aside and out of mercy, the need of the other person is put first. When mercy and love and kindness are extended first, it does not make the law of no effect, but rather it brings a change and obedience to the law that is genuine. The creed said, this woman was caught in adultery and deserves to die. But Jesus saw her need as an individual, as a person who was hurting. And in his mercy, he forgave her. And then he said, go and sin no more. It was not the creed that changed her life. She knew she was sinful. She didn't need anybody to remind her of her sin, but it was the sheer act of mercy that forever changed her life and placed in her heart, I believe, the desire then to obey. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Almost implying, if you will, if you don't love me, don't bother. The law is not there for strict conformity, but as a means to show one's loving commitment to someone else. So am I opposed to the law of the creed? Of course not. Like David, I delight in the law. But I also believe that a legalistic obedience to the law does not bring glory to God. Because I can appear to obey him in my life, but be far from him in my heart. And a mere outward observance of the law is mockery to God. I'll give you an easy example of that. I have a smartphone. Elizabeth doesn't always think it's so smart. And I got an update on my texting app. Some of the youth know that I'm not very savvy when it comes to my texting They've got what they call a texting bomb from me. But anyway, that's where you're trying to respond to one person and it goes to everybody. Anyway, so on this update, it said we can now provide for you on any day or with repetition or whatever you want, send any text that you want. I said, oh, this could be good. I could remind people of meetings that we're going to have and I don't have to actually be thinking about it. I'll set them up all at once so that a few days before and then the day before and all that, it'll just boom, go out. But... I don't want to send another texting bomb, so I'll try this out on my wonderful wife, Elizabeth. Okay, so I pick up my phone, and I write her some sweet little nothings. Well, they're not nothings. They're for real. I'm already in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Dearest Elizabeth, I love you so much. You're such a, you know, and I go on and on. I won't embarrass her. And then I set it up on repeat. See if this thing works. That's what it says. First day, I see her later in the day. Oh, that was so sweet, that text that you sent. I really appreciated that. Oh, you're welcome. I go on with my day, and the next day, don't even think about it. 
until I get a phone call from Elizabeth. Hello? What are you doing? What? I just got the exact same text from you that you sent yesterday. Oh, yeah. What are you up to? She's smart. She knows there's a difference between the genuine and going through the motions. Are you with me? Yet we think that God is no smarter than Elizabeth. And somehow we can fool him. And we go through the motions and we try and look good on the outside, but it's not coming from a genuine heart of surrender to God. And that's mockery to God. Isaiah 1.11 says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? I've had enough of your burnt offerings. Bring no more futile sacrifices, he says. And they could respond, Yes, but there's a creed, God, that says, Yes, but void of love. It's a mockery to God. And when we uphold the standard void of love for the other person, it's the same. Mockery to God. And I can be as strict as I want to be on myself. But in dealing with others, I have to be patient. Jesus could choose to overwhelm me with my sinfulness, couldn't he? But rather, his model is not to overwhelm me, but to slowly, over time, bring things to my attention in a gentle and patient way. And I'm so thankful for that. I mean, sure, a case could be made about our study of, of Jesus at this party that hanging out with tax collectors and socializing with prostitutes could make for bad press for the kingdom of God. Who doesn't understand that? And so some could perhaps conclude, you know what, that kind of association will only encourage the immoral in their immorality. But Jesus saw past that. Jesus elevated their need above the creed. Nope, look at it. If I can win two or three more like Matthew, it's worth the risk. Need over creed. And so Jesus took his place, we just read, on the side of the people. Mercy elevates need over creed. Our temptation is to do exactly the opposite. Here's what we want to do. We want to elevate creed over need, don't we? I mean, we just get it backwards. And so we win our arguments where we live. We win our arguments until we lose our communities. We prove the point until there's finally nobody to prove the point to anymore. Creed won, but it missed it. It lost the need of the people. And that's always so sad. Pharisees always get it backwards, exalting creed over need. They said it in that story. I don't care if you're hungry. I don't care if that man has a shriveled arm. What are we supposed to do? Do something about it on the Sabbath? The creed says this is the Sabbath. Nothing. Pharisees always elevate creed over need. Jesus said, you got it backwards. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. How did Martin Luther pray? May God of his mercy preserve me from a church in which there are none but saints. Deliver me, please, from the self-righteous. And that's why both Luther and Jesus chose to be on the side of the people. Need over creed. If there's an error at all, let it be on the side of the people. So my question since it's clear that mercy is the default setting for God, I desire mercy. What should be the default setting for God's people? Answer, mercy, but of course. And maybe you're saying, okay, that makes sense, but how do we do that practically? How do I live that out? 
I found a little question I'm trying to implement more and more. Some of you have heard of some of these questions. What would Jesus do? And that's good. There's also the, the question, what does the Bible tell me to do? And that's instructive. But I'm finding a question that's more powerful in my life. What would mercy do? What would be the most merciful response in this instance? So I'm watching the kids. And an elbow catches the cereal bowl and the bowl falls on my lap and breaks all over the floor. We have a huge mess. I'm trying to say, okay, what would mercy do in this instance? I want to give someone a piece of my mind. That's not done right. That's wrong. I just want to give you a little piece of my mind so you can understand where I stand on this. I want to give them a piece of my mind. I've given so many pieces of my mind, I don't have a brain left. So I'm starting to learn. Come on, Dave, calm down, please. What would be the most merciful response in this situation? Somebody calls me up. It's been a long day. I'm already worn out. Could you come and help us, please? I have to put the brake on. Okay, what would be the most merciful way to respond? My employer, know my employee, know my colleague. What would be the most merciful response? It's Friday afternoon. I've got to get gas, and we both gun at the same time. Uh, trying to get the last parking space. Uh, what's the most merciful response? And I'm beginning to think it may sound kind of hokey, but Jesus used this example too. I'm beginning to think it has to do with how we treat our pets. You know, I, I may be running out of the house on Sabbath morning because I have a creed that I don't like to be late. And I look there, and everybody's loaded up. We're ready to go. And there at the window is our dog, Jack. And he's got a major need. Can't be late, buddy. Sorry, you can hold it. I'll be back in four hours. Is that being merciful to one of God's creatures? Listen, when I came across this, it's in Sons and Daughters of God. He who loves God will not only love his fellow men, but will regard with tender compassion the creatures which God has made, end quote. So I'm hurrying out of the house because I have this creed that I don't want to be late, and I see Jack inside with a major need. And I have to think, what would be the most merciful response to my dog? No need right now gets elevated above creed. I'd much rather... As the pastor saying this, and it's not even in my notes. I'd much rather have you show up late every Sabbath than to be yelling and screaming at the family to be here on time. Are you with me? If y'all don't show up until 1030 next week, that's okay. What would be the most merciful way to respond? Well, I overslept. Well, I didn't set things out. Need over creed. Now, I don't always ask it. Sometimes I just respond. But I find when I don't ask it, I'm the one that suffers. Because I'm giving these speeches sometimes in my mind of what I would say. And I get more and more worked up. And these gastric juices start squirting out things. You know what I'm talking about? Because I'm going to give them one of these pieces of my mind. And I'm tied up in a knot until I'm able to deliver the speech, if you will. And some of you may be saying, well, can't we go too far with this mercy thing? Can't we be too loving and too merciful? I believe true love and true mercy sees the big picture, and that is it looks at the need of the person, and if the need of the person is such that they would benefit from being pulled aside, that's what mercy does. 
But it's not because I'm rehearsing and practicing the speech. And boy, I'm going to give it to him. I'm going to nail him. I got my proof text ready to go. Kapow! But rather, I ask this question. What would be the most merciful response? I go home and I pray about it first. I ask that the Lord will humble me. I ask, Lord, will you give me permission to go speak to this person? And if he does, the attitude's completely different. Go something more like this. Now, brother, I may be mistaken about this. And I know that there are areas in my life that are not fully in harmony with God's will. But there's an area of concern that I have that I want to discuss with you. And I say this as a Christian brother because I'm concerned about you and love you. Do you see the difference? No longer does creed reign supreme, but it's my concern for them and their need. True love and mercy unselfishly thinks of the other person. So I challenge you to try it. What would mercy do in this particular instance with my wife, with my children, with my friends, with strangers, with my colleagues, with my employees? What would it do? Because the fact of the matter is, when mercy had a choice between creed or need at Calvary, now listen carefully, when mercy had a choice between creed or need at Calvary, mercy said, we're going for need. Because the creed is, he's dead meat. She's dead. She's sinned. The creed is clear. You're lost. But mercy said, no, 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 no. When I'm around, need goes over creed. So mercy stretched out his arms and died for me. Knowing the creed, but embracing my need. And at Calvary, mercy triumphed over justice. Dear Heavenly Father, how can we say thank you enough? Because the creed said, he's dead meat. She's a sinner. They're lost. And the creed is clear. But in your overwhelming mercy, you said, no, when I'm around, need goes over creed. And in mercy, you stretched out your arms and died for us, knowing the creed, but embracing our need. May your treatment of us impact how we treat others today. And by your mercy, help us to see people as you do, that through your Holy Spirit, mercy may triumph in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.